you are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Common Ground Church. Uh, yeah, as Nick said, my name is Job. Um, some of you may or may not recognize me. I uh, sometimes play Cajon uh, for worship, and a couple months ago I shared my testimony in front of all of you. Um, for those of you that uh, don't recognize me, uh, yes, I said, my name is Job. I am a student at the School of Mines, and uh, yeah, it is my pleasure to speak before you guys today. Um, yeah, we are thankful that even though through uh, all of these trying times uh, that we are able to connect through technology, um, but yeah, as Nick was mentioning, uh, this is the first time that we're trying to do this, so please be patient as we try and figure things out. Uh, things might be tweaked and hopefully improved week to week as uh, we continue to try and meet together under God's word. And uh, yeah, again, not to beat you guys over the head with it, but just a reminder to stay safe and be smart, uh, but also not to live in fear, that we can trust that God was not surprised that this was going to happen, um, and he has a plan for us, and he will see us through to the other side. So with that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you that we get to come together, uh, either in person or over Facebook, and sit under your word. We thank you that your word is living and active, and that we don't need uh, men to speak on behalf of your word, but it can speak for itself. Um, today, uh, please don't allow uh, me to speak out of my own wisdom, but please speak through me and uh, what you would have for us. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for those of you who have been with us, you know that we have been on a road to the cross, the road to Golgotha, um, kind of uh, walking through the Easter story as we see Jesus approach his final 48 hours here on earth. We began in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was a foil to the first garden, the Garden of Eden. We saw Judas and Peter in their respective betrayal and denial of Jesus, rejecting Jesus and the gift that he offered them. And we look forward to Pilate and the trial that Jesus has before him, him trying to, Pilate trying to uh, not kill an innocent man, but being pushed over by the pressure of the crowd, his eventual sentencing Jesus to death on the cross, his crucifixion, Jesus' death, and finally his resurrection and victory over death. But stuck right in the middle of that is the story of Jesus in front of the Jewish council. And when I think about the Easter story, I would have to say that is probably the least significant part of the story. When I think of the Easter story, it is not, it is not Jesus in front of the council. It's, yeah, the, the betrayal in the garden, him uh, feeling and pleading with God to take the cup away from him, but not my will, but your will be done. It is, yeah, the pressure of Pilate and being crucified in such a terrible, horrible way. His amazing resurrection and the victory over death. But, yeah, what's up with this trial? And so, uh, when I was first preparing on what to say, I was like, man, how in the world am I going to talk for 30 minutes about this? But as I continued to dig into it, I'm like, dang, I only have 30 minutes to talk about this. So, each of the Gospels 
talks about uh, this section, um, but they all uh, focus on slightly different details. And so we're going to bounce around a little bit, but I'd like to begin our sermon in the Gospel of John. If you would turn with me to chapter 18, we will begin in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So immediately we see Jesus arrested, and there is two prominent figures, Annas and Caiaphas. The text says that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and Caiaphas being the standing high priest. We'll see him a little bit later, so we'll put him to the side. But Annas is uh, kind of an interesting character. The historian Josephus tells us that he too was also high priest, though uh, he was actually removed from power by the Roman government. Though he was removed from power, he still maintained a lot of the power and influence that came with a station, and oftentimes was still referred to as high priest, which we'll see in a little bit. Annas, along with his four sons and his son-in-law Caiaphas, would each in turn serve as high priest before the destruction of the temple. And along with that, his son set up a, uh, a business of sorts, uh, selling animals for sacrifice to travelers that came in for the Passover. Along with that, uh, all of these foreign travelers would bring with them different types of currency. And so Annas was kind enough to exchange their foreign currency for the local variety, for a small fee, of course. This business and power, all of this influence, sort of sets Annas up as the powerhouse in Jerusalem, a godfather, if you would. However, in two different occasions, one of those occasions being just a few days ago, this radical character Jesus comes on the scene and starts driving everybody out of the temple and turning over all of these money tables. Now, if you're the godfather of the Jewish mafia, you're not going to take too kindly to some punk cutting in on your family business. Like, this just got personal. And so, Annas tries to take the, the first attempt at often this guy Jesus uh, off the books. Doesn't want to make it official. So if we jump down to verse 19 of chapter 18, the story continues. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Here we see the first of what will be a few trials of Jesus. Though I use the word trial very loosely, because this is anything but a legitimate trial. We're all familiar with the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which is God's written law. It was the law that God gave to Moses to give to the people. And up until this point, this was the standard for the, the nation of Israel. 
But along with that, there was what was called the Talmud, which was originally just oral tradition, kind of passed down from generation to generation, but was finally written down by a group of uh, yeah, Jewish rabbis. And the Talmud was sort of man's interpretation or explanation of God's law. So the, the commandment, um, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Well, what does that mean? And so uh, in Jesus' time, we see all of these extra rules about what it means to honor the Sabbath day. And oftentimes the Pharisees would come to Jesus and say, hey, you're breaking the Sabbath law. And he's like, no, 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 I'm breaking your guys' law that you added to God's law. And so, along with that, uh, God's law and the Talmud speak about how to conduct civil trials. In God's law, it says in the book of Deuteronomy that someone can only be convicted of a crime if there are two or three witnesses testifying to that crime. The Talmud goes further to explain that one of those witnesses cannot be the one being accused, similar to our Fifth Amendment, that you can't be forced to testify against yourself. However, we see right here that Annas is not only serving not as the judge, the impartial mediator and uh, server of justice, but the prosecutor, the one actually asking and accusing Jesus. Not only that, he is not bringing forward witnesses, but asking Jesus to directly testify against himself. Jesus, understanding both sets of laws, addresses that. And that's why he says, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said. Essentially, like if you're going to try and conduct a trial, like actually bring in witnesses. So you see, Jesus is consistent in his character. He said that he was always in synagogues and in the temple teaching. He didn't say anything in secret. It didn't matter who he was with. He didn't tell one group something different than another group. It was always the same. He was always consistent and always Jesus. We as Christians should try and live our lives in the same way. We should be so radically for Jesus that everything that we say and everything that we do should prove to those around us that we love and serve Jesus Christ. We shouldn't have to verbally defend, yeah, I'm a Christian, you can tell because this, this, and this. They should just know. I would ask you guys to to reflect on that a little bit. Like, if you were on trial to see whether or not you were a Christian, would there be enough evidence to find you guilty? We see, uh, continuing on, we see a small exchange between Jesus and uh, this officer. But, uh, of course, Jesus, being without blame, Annas cannot find anything to hold against Jesus. And so, I would assume he's rather frustratedly uh, sends him off to Caiaphas. Now, the book of John doesn't actually talk about Jesus in front of Caiaphas. And so we have to turn to one of the other Gospels. For that story. If you would join me in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. We will begin in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Again, not only Annas, 
But now we see Caiaphas and the entire Jewish council coming together and disregarding not only God's law, but their own law. In the book of Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, it says, uh, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. But a few chapters later, it actually reiterates that and says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor and do not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says that if anyone brings an accusatory case, so like I am accusing uh, my neighbor of something, they are to bring it before the Lord and the priests are supposed to judge diligently to see whether or not this accusation is valid or if it is a false witness. The Talmud goes in depth on what does judging diligently mean. And among those things, the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council, were not supposed to meet at night. They thought that during the day, the extra light, as light allows you to see clearly, that judging things during the day would allow your mind to see the trial clearly and be able to make a more proper judgment. Along with that, if the trial were to end in convicting someone to death, a full 24 hours was required to allow the defendant to gather witnesses to present his case, along for the actual counsel to be able to fully, uh, yeah, diligently judge and properly come to what they believe is the right judgment. We see that from the moment of Jesus' arrest in the garden, to Pilate, which we'll see in the future, um, saying, go then and crucify him, is only nine hours. Most of those is when the entire city is asleep. How could a proper trial be conducted when Jesus is not allowed to bring in his own witnesses, to properly defend himself, and blatantly the council meeting and judging, holding a trial at night? Continuing on, in verse 60, speaking of the false witnesses, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us, if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who is it that struck you? So, though God's law stipulates that two or three witnesses were needed, and two witnesses do come forward, the Gospel of Mark actually tells us that even these two witnesses couldn't agree. It was true that Jesus said these things, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it again. But the Gospel of John tells us that the temple that he was referring to was his body. And so it comes with an understanding that it's more than just being able to repeat words to somebody, being able to understand the words that someone says, but the intentions with which they say it. We as Christians, when we're communicating, 
especially when we're communicating on somebody else's behalf, and especially, especially if that somebody else is Jesus, we need to be very sure that we understand the intention and the heart behind the words that Jesus spoke. See, the Pharisees, they were great at following the letter of the law. They were full of self-righteous arrogance and, uh, yeah, held their ability to follow the law above those around them. But Jesus, time and time again, would accuse them of missing the point of what the law was actually meant to show. So, we as Christians can so easily beat people over the head with the Bible. We can point out people's sin, we can say, your doctrine is wrong for this, that, or the other, and totally miss the point of what Jesus came to do. When Jesus accused people, it was always meant to point them back to God, to glorify God. When the Pharisees were holding the letter of the law, when we try and point out other people's flaws or hold our own uh, biblical knowledge and esteem, we're glorifying ourselves and not God. It's important that as we live our lives, as we try to do what is right, that we make sure that we're doing it for God's glory, not our own. So, seeing uh, this accusation come forward, uh, yeah, the high priest Caiaphas is just trying to get something on him. Asks him uh, to respond to what these people have to say. Jesus, knowing that, yeah, as Mark tells us, that even these two witnesses couldn't agree in their story, that there isn't a case against him. And so he remains silent. Isaiah 53.7 says that he, speaking of the Messiah, was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus could have given a wild defense, told them every way that they were wrong and proven himself, called in various witnesses. Peter was right there in the crowd, could have called him forward to testify for him. And the crowd knew, the council knew, that if this was made a public trial, that they wouldn't be able to accuse him because the crowd loved him. That's why they had to betray him and arrest him in secret and try and kill him off, convict him to die before a proper trial could be made. And so, being silent, the high priest, frustrated that this trial is an utter failure, pulls out what he thinks is the ace up his sleeve. He knows of Jesus' ministry, knows what he's said, and thinks that if he can get him to repeat some of the things that he said in this trial, that it would be enough to accuse him of blasphemy, knowing that Jesus has numerous times claimed to be on equal standing with God. And so we see the high priest adjure, uh, powerfully put under oath to uh, testify, to say whether or not he is the Christ, the Son of God. And again, Jesus, understanding that responding to this question would open, open him up to charges of blasphemy, though ironically, it's not blasphemy if it's true. And Jesus' unwavering commitment to be with us and to provide a way for us to be with him responds. And he says, It is as you say, you speak the truth. 
But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He claims to be equal with God. But with that, there is a warning. That he will be seated at the right hand of power. The right hand being um, the honored position for a ruler if a fellow ruler were to come and to be considered an equal. Sit at my right hand. Claiming to be equal with God, coming in power and on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is warning these people that though you are judging me right now, and you think that you have the power, there is a time coming when I will be the authority, and I will be judging you. And the judgment that I have to give is much more binding. Hearing this, knowing that the trial up to this point has been a failure, but wanting to move it forward, Caiaphas does this emotional display of tearing his robes, making it... uh, very uh, impactful what he has to say next, accusing him of blasphemy and trying to push this trial forward. Accusing him of blasphemy uh, demands that he be judged, asks the council what the judgment be, and they say he deserves death. They go ahead, spit on him. Uh, The book of Luke tells us that uh, they actually blindfolded him before they beat him. Spit on him, struck him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now, if you've ever seen a football game, played football, you know that one of the most devastating moments is when the quarterback gets tackled. When, like, this huge linebacker just throws all of his weight at him, just smashing him like a pancake. But most of the time, after the linebacker gets up, quarterback pops up, no big deal, keeps on playing. What in the world? (laughs) I'd be squished like a blueberry. The thing is that the quarterback could see it coming, and so he's able to respond and roll with a punch and minimize the impact. It's the same reason that boxers are able to take so many hits and keep on fighting, because they know when to give to the hit in order to minimize the, the damage. But it's when you can't see the hit coming. It's when the quarterback gets blindsided that the real damage is done. And so by blinding Jesus the beating that he endures is much, much worse. The book of Isaiah, in chapter 52, says that he is marred more than any other man. Between this beating, being whipped, the uh, torture that he endures on the cross, I would not be surprised if, it's hard to tell, if that is an actual man there at the end, or just a bunch of hamburger meat. Though it says that they struck him with his hand, there is some debate on the actual translation of that. Some people say, yeah, with the palm of the hand, uh, but another translation is with a rod. The prophet Micah speaks to the Messiah, saying that the Messiah will be struck on the cheek with a rod. So... Whether or not this is that instance of fulfilling that prophecy or perhaps somewhere else, not entirely certain, but regardless, yeah, fist or rod, it would hurt. But understand that Jesus chose to endure all of this for me and for you. He chose to endure it for the people sitting in that room, though they chose to reject it. He endured that beating for the very soldiers that beat him, 
Jesus, the Son of God, man who could summon at his will 72,000 angels to fight on his behalf, endured all of this because of his unwavering commitment to be with us. Not only that, but he endured all of this while we were still sinners. Judas didn't understand Jesus. He had a misconception for what the Messiah was, and when his ideals weren't met, betrayed him. Peter, out of fear, fled and rejected, tried to forget that he knew Jesus. But these soldiers, they heard what he claimed, who he said he was, that he was the Son of God, the Messiah. And they said, not for me. I reject that. And they spit on him. How often do we spit on Christ, favoring our own freedom? We spit on Christ, rejecting his deity. We spit on Christ, thinking that our own righteousness is sufficient to save us. The question then must be asked, why? Why go through all of this? Why not try and find some other way? As Jesus prayed in the garden, if there is any way to let this cup pass from me, please, but not my will, but your will be done. To answer that, I'd actually like to jump back to verse 65, seeing this emotional display of the high priest Caiaphas tearing his robe. Now, traditionally, the tearing of your robe was done as a sign of deep anguish or uh, mental tribulation. We see it a lot of times with the death of a loved one, uh, whether it was Jacob hearing uh, that his son uh, Joseph had died, or King David hearing that Saul and Jonathan had died. According to God's law, however, there was one person not allowed to tear their robes, and that was the high priest. Because of his station, what he represented, this uh, very, like, basic, fundamental, like, carnal act of just being in anguish was, uh, yeah, considered too low. He needed to be held to a higher standard. And so he wasn't allowed to. However, many, many years later, these Jewish rabbis made a provision for high priests to tear their robes if they were in the presence of someone speaking blasphemy. In fact, they were instructed if they were to ever hear anyone blaspheme God, to tear their robes, whether or not they felt anguish. Again, showing that these people had put man's law above God's law. It became so bad that the prophet Joel actually warned the people and said, tear your hearts, not your clothes, and return to Jehovah your God. See, tearing robes was meant to be, yeah, a sign of deep anguish, but oftentimes uh, was just another sign of being self-righteous. Like, oh, look at me, I am, I am tearing my robes. Look at how holy that I am. I am so offended by that person blaspheming God. Look at me, look at me. Now, if you wanted to tear your robe, you would do it by grabbing the bottom of the hem of your garment and tearing upwards, bottom to top. The high priest, the mediator between the people of God and God himself, 
tore the symbol of his status, everything that he represented, from bottom to top. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross, the veil in the temple, the veil that divided the holy place from the holy of holies, the holy of holies being the place where the high priest could only go in once a year to stand before the mercy seat of God and offer intercession for the people and their sins. The veil that cut off God from everybody else, except through the high priest, was torn from top to bottom. Man and God tearing the symbols of the old covenant. And why? God recognized that sinners sacrificing on behalf of sinners could not save them. The law could not save anybody. Man, in its depravity, took the symbol that God had, being the high priest, and twisted it, making it a position for gain, to line your pocketbook. And so, God destroys the symbol of the old covenant to make way for a new one. What is that new covenant? The book of Hebrews tells us, the end of chapter 4, that Jesus becomes our new great high priest. That he was tempted in the ways that we were tempted, but did not sin. It continues on in chapter 5, saying that it was because of the things that he suffered that he is able to sympathize with us. That he is able to meet us where we are, where we need him most. Because he suffered those same things. But Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't a Levite, so he couldn't be a priest. When he says, and the author of Hebrews says that he was establishing a new priesthood, a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, we find in the book of Genesis. Abraham goes to war, is victorious, and upon coming back is met by this Melchizedek fellow. We don't really know him much at all. Um, we only see him another time in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, um, where uh, the psalmist declares that, I will create you a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which a lot of historians believe to be Jerusalem before Israel proper took it over. But he was also a priest a king, and a priest. And so, being of the tribe of Judah, the, the royal tribe, the tribe that was promised to David that your descendants will sit on the throne forever, we see the fulfillment of both the promise to David, allowing a king to sit on the throne, and a priest to be our new mediator for the new covenant. Chapter 7 continues on explaining a little bit more about what is this order of Melchizedek in saying that the tribe of Levi was a descendant of Abraham. And when Abraham met Melchizedek, he gave a tenth of everything that he had, saying that, Mel Mel that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. And Levi, being a descendant of Abraham, was... It says that while he was still in, while Levi was still in the loins of Abraham, was giving 
an offering to Melchizedek, saying that this is far superior. And not only that, is it a superior priesthood, it's an eternal priesthood. Because Jesus lived a life without sin, but died anyway to pay the price for those sins, that we are now able to come to him as a high priest. We are no longer bound to come to a man, a sinner, to speak to God on our behalf, that Jesus becomes that high priest for us. But more than that, he is a king and a priest. But chapter 10 says that he is also that perfect sacrifice. The king establishes the rules. He tells you what the laws for his kingdom are and must enforce them. He must set a punishment for those who break the rules. The priest, in regards to our mediation with God being the ruler, becomes the mediator between the layman and the king, mediating, trying to advocate, as 1 John tells us, on behalf of those who break the rules. But there is still a payment that needs to be paid, a punishment that needs to happen for breaking the rules. And so, Jesus Christ becomes that perfect sacrifice, that we no longer need to sacrifice bulls and goats every single time that we sin. But being the perfect sacrifice was able to cover once and for all everything that we have done, are doing, and could ever do. I pray that as we go forward today, this week, this month, that we would remember that though man is corrupt and helpless, that the Old Testament law, if it was able to save anybody, there wouldn't be a need for a new one. That we can find a hope that though we can't save ourselves, which is what the law was meant to do, show us that we can't save ourselves, that we would be able to find a hope and a trust in Jesus Christ, that salvation can come through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our great high priest. We thank you that, yeah, though we can't save ourselves, you loved us so much that while we were spitting in your face, while we were beating you, you came to die for us. We thank you that though there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, that we don't have to do anything. That all we have to do is turn to you, believe that your sacrifice was sufficient to cover our sins, that we are in need of a Savior, and believe. As we go through this uh, yeah, very uncertain, turbulent time with the coronavirus and uh, the economy um, doing who knows what, I pray that we would be able to have a hope that surpasses fear, that people would be able to look on us and wonder how we can live our lives so confidently, and that in so doing, we would be able to point them to Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.